0: Our first speaker this morning, David Knott, is a consultant surgeon at Chelsea and Westminster and St. Mary's for the last 20 years. And every year he takes leave, unpaid leave, <coughs> to work for aid agencies, Medicines Sans Frontier, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and Syria Relief. He's provided surgical treatment to the victims of conflict and catastrophe in Bosnia, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Iver- Ivory Coast. Chad, Darfur, Yemen, Democratic Republic of Congo, Haiti, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Syria, Central African Republic, Gaza, and Nepal. He arrived back from Bangladesh late last night. It's a great um, pleasure, honor, privilege to invite David Knott to the stage. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Sam, for inviting me. Um, so I'm going to talk about war. And uh, some of these pictures I'm going to show you are very disturbing. Um, and so I'm going to give you a warning, too. If you want to look away, look away. The reason why I'm showing you what war is really like is because that's what a surgeon has to face uh, when he goes and leaves his uh, clinic and operating theatre uh, in our um, first world country and goes to a third world sometimes and has to face terrible, terrible injuries. Um, so I've called this actually living, uh, leaving a legacy in, in war zones, and of course I work at these hospitals most of the time, um, but for 24 years now I've worked for these aid agencies, uh, ICRC, MSF, and more recently, Syria Relief. So how do you describe war? Well, war is a state of armed conflict between different countries or different groups within a country. And what it basically involves is is doing terrible things to people. It's killing them or shooting them with armaments. And there are 50 million AK-45s uh, AK at the moment around the world. Or it's shelling people, it's blowing people up. And of course we, we suffer in our country with people having um, knives. But all this is all about, now I want to just Talk to you a bit about what you'd expect to find in war. and in a few minutes I'm going to just talk to you about what it's all about. It's all about physics, really. It's all about hurting people by transposing energy from one instrument to the person. And it involves about all forms of energy occurs because of transfer of kinetic energy. And we all know that kinetic energy equals half MV squared. If you double the mass, you'll double the energy. If you double the velocity, because it's squared you'll quadruple the energy. So this just goes to show uh, an IED, what the amount of energy uh, from an improvised explosive device will do uh, to try and harm people. We've got the sound. Uh, The sound's not working. That's not the sound. Okay, I'll talk to you about this then. So, first of all, we talk about bullets. Now, bullets are—you have a nine-millimeter or you have a 50-caliber weapon. R- now, the thing that comes off is the bullet at the end. So if you double the amount of mass of the bullet, you're going to double the amount of energy. So if you really make a bullet very heavy, you're going to really double the, significantly increase the energy. If you increase the amount of velocity of the energy being pushed to push that bullet out, then you're going to quadruple the energy. So you can see how much uh, the energy will be transposed into a person. Now, many years ago, uh, 1983, we had this thing called the tri distribution of death, which does occur. Uh, People that die immediately if they're being shot will die because of brainstem, high-cord injuries, heart and vessels. And they will die later, early deaths over the next two hours, uh, from all these tension pneumothorax and everything else, really. Why I'm telling you this is because nowadays, if you're in war, uh, you'll see patients coming to you very rapidly. For example, here, for example. There's no sound still. Is that right? Unfortunately, there's no sound. I hope we can get it back on. This is on the front line where I was working uh, in... Uh, Syria, and you can see somebody's just shot about 100 meters away, and they're brought forward, Um, and so you're dealing with people that are bleeding significantly. Um, Now the problem is, if you shoot somebody with a small bullet here, for example, compared to this bullet, you shoot somebody with a small bullet there, what's going to happen is, it just simply goes into the body itself, the bullet goes in, it causes cutting and laceration, and that's about it really. And the only reason for uh, having a problem is if this bullet hits, goes into the, uh, into the leg, say, for example, here, and hits a major blood vessel or a um, nerve, then you're going to get trouble. So a small bullet like this will only kill you if you, it hits a major blood vessel and you start bleeding to death internally. majority of the time, people don't die from small, millet, some small um, bullets like this. However, it does depend where you're shot. And if you are shot, this picture I took in Sierra Leone, uh, when I was there, so if you're shot here underneath your armpit, in a, and this person's standing in that position, or if you're shot there in that position, you, this person's going to live because the bullet's going to go hit something else and travel down his vertebral column into the pelvis, whereas here, if he's standing up and being shot, he's going to die because the bullet will enter either his major aortic vessels or his heart. Now, the situation is completely different when you're dealing with high-velocity, high-energy uh, round and I'll just show you what that means. So if you're firing around, say, into this structure, what happens is it sucks a load of bacteria, and the bullet rotates around, and the energy displaced is absolutely significant. And it's a completely different ball game if you're dealing with a high-velocity weapon, which is shot in war, compared to a low-velocity weapon, which is majority of pistol wounds, things like that. And just for an example, I'll show you what, it, what I mean. If this is a carton, say, uh, a closed structure, say for the liver, or the brain, or something like that. This is what happens to it, the bullet comes in like that, the energy is dispersed inside the cavity, and the thing just blows up. And that's what happens if you're shot in the head, say for a high-velocity weapon. Some of these pictures now are not pleasant, But this is a high-velocity weapon, again, shot in the head. You're never going to survive that. This is a young child in Libya that was shot with a 50 caliber. The amount of energy that's, that's forced into this area is significant, and it is a really difficult and terrible wound. Now, if you're shot with a 20-millimeter cannon round, this is even worse, and I'd advise you to look away if you don't want to, but if you're shot, say, for example, here, again, this was in Libya when I was there, uh, very close-range firing with tanks, this is what happens to you if you get blown up. So, let's just talk about the other things in war that we come across, which are blast injuries, and... Is the sound working now? Can I just assume, confirm that? So, if we're shot with a, if, we, if we're affected by a blast wound, so explosions result from the almost instantaneous conversion of a solid or liquid into gas after detonation of an explosive material. When a bomb goes off, it's instantaneous. I just want to show you that. So here's somebody standing behind a bomb that's about to go off. And What I want you to notice more, more is what happens to this gentleman here when the bomb blows off. It's instantaneous. He actually doesn't move. It's a huge amount of energy. You see, he's still not moving. So you can imagine what will happen to you if a bomb drops on your head. This is a picture I took in Syria when I was there in 2014. This is a barrel bomb being dropped. Uh, This is on top of our hospital. I must have been crazy at the time, but there you go. So this is the barrel bomb being dropped. You can see what something's happening there. So if we do it in slow motion, you'll see a barrel bomb being dropped, and you'll see that there is a shock wave first that comes about. This is the shock wave, followed by a blast wind, and then fragmentation. Now, what happens when you have a blast? A shock wave happens. A shock wave is instantaneous, and it pushes a load of air out, and that air then gets filled up with a vacuum, and you get a thing called a blast wind. This huge amount of wind will then follow this, this shock wave and will throw you up into the air, knock you against various walls and tissues or whatever, and will, the third thing is the fragmentation. I just want to explain what a blast wind is, a uh, shock wave is like. There's a bomb going off about two miles away. Oh, fuck! Excuse the French. That's the shock wave. Now, several factors will influence the magnitude of the shock wave. First of all, the medium it's in. If it's in air, then it's not too bad. If it's in water, then there's, the shock wave doesn't dissipate because, the, and that's what happened when you dropped depth charges and things in the war. It's the shock wave that was the one that actually blew up the submarines inside. So, if you fire something in water, then it's a dense medium. The shock wave will really resonate and cause major problems. Also, in an explosion, it depends on how far you are away from the blast. So, the blast decreases the cube root, which means that if you're 10 feet from the blast, you'll get eight times more blast than you are at 20 feet. And also, the blast wave will knock around all the walls and it will resonate inside. So, you get a higher chance of dying if you're in a uh, closed space than an open bomb. And here you can see an Israeli. Uh, uh, study which showed that the mortality, if you're in a bus bomb, for example, was around 50%, whereas it's about 8% if you're outside. And Of course, this was the 7-7 bombings that occurred in London. Everybody on the top of that roof died. Let's go back now to our bomb in Syria, the barrel bomb that's dropped. There are four different things that happen. It's the primary effect of the shock wave, secondary effect is the, f- is the fragments, tertiary effect is the effects of the blast wave, and quaternary is the effect of the incendiary explosion. So, when the bomb is dropped, you get, first of all, the shock wave, which causes significant damage, followed by the fragmentation injuries, which come off, followed by the effects of the blast wind, which will lift you up and throw you around. And if, it's, and if it causes burning, then you have the effect of the incendiary. And what actually happens when you have uh, a primary blast wave? Well, here's the shock wave that comes on. If you're standing next to it, and in fact, I had my ear uh, drum blown out in 2014, five pounds per square inch, will knock your eardrum out, and it's just about coming back now. 15 pounds per square inch will give you shock lung, and you'll be unable to breathe, and you'll die from uh, significant bleeding. 10 pounds per square inch will ruin your gastrointestinal tract, and if you're close to the bomb, the shock wave will cause you death at 50 pounds per square inch. A little bit of physics. What do I mean by that? Well, if the shock wave hits you, what happens is, A dense medium will then go into a a less dense medium. So, the dense medium, which is the blood, for example, will go into the alveolus, and then then you'll get this problem you're unable to breathe, you're coughing up blood, etc., etc. And that's why people standing next to a blast wave, standing next to a bomb that's gone off, may not have any injuries at all on them, but they are dying because of the bleeding inside their lungs. So, secondary blast fragments are these things, lots of little fragments will come off. Again, this is when I was in Syria, 2013. Uh, inside here, we didn't clear this man in, uh, enough. You should always make sure that you have a metal detector when somebody comes in because there was a second bomb here which we didn't know about when he came in. And there's another lady here who I dealt with uh, in Syria at the same time. Uh, there was a lots of bomb building uh, going on. And when I pulled this fragment out, somebody said in Arabic, detonator. And so a big bucket of water was brought fairly rapidly. Tertiary blast injuries are the effect of the blast wave. They'll throw you up into the air, and the shock wave will cause an, a fracture, and then if you're blown against something, it will cause a blast wave and, oh, and amputate your arm or your leg. And so quaternary is the effect of all the burns, etc., that you'll have with a shock wave. This is when I was in Gaza in 2014 during the Israeli-Gaza war, and most of the Patients that come in are affected by all these types, primary, secondary, tertiary, and quaternary. So primary, he's got problems with his breathing. He can't breathe because um, he's got shock lung. Secondary, he's got the effects of fragments. He's fragmented all over. Tertiary, he's got a fracture of his uh, leg because he's been thrown against somebody. And quaternary, he's got burns everywhere. So these are, spe- these are sort of injuries that you expect. And you need to run through these things in your mind whenever you see that. So that's a short introduction to what you will see if you're going as a surgeon. And these are the places I've been to over the years. I started in 1993 in Sarajevo. I've been to Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, um, Liberia, Chad, uh, Central African Republic, Darfur twice, Congo twice, Yemen twice, a lot of the time spent in the Middle East and Far East. And I just want to tell you about I started in 1993 in Sarajevo when I was a very young man uh, working with MSF, uh, and this was the hospital where I worked in in the middle of Sarajevo, which the, these brown lines here are the front lines. Again, going to war, you don't quite realize what it's about, because you've, you've just come from home, you've never been to a war, and they provide you then with a flak jacket and a helmet, send you off on this International Committee of the Red Cross plane, which takes off from Zagreb, and makes a dive nose into Sarajevo. This is the hospital I worked in, this is the hospital I worked in, uh, called the State Hospital in Sarajevo. This is it two years ago, uh, but this was it when I worked in 2000, uh, in 1993. It's called the Swiss Cheese Hospital because it had so many holes in it. And often you'd be operating underground and you'd hear the effect of the of bombs hitting the hospital. And sometimes I'd be operating, the lights would go off and a man with a big... Uh, Uh, um, uh, uh, Something would come in with with holding a big light with with batteries, and uh, this is him holding the big light whilst I was operating, in a wheelbarrow, that's what I'm trying to say, put batteries in a wheelbarrow, bring them in and hold a light so I could operate. And We forget then, actually, at the time when you're operating, uh, we know now for trauma that everybody has to keep nice and warm, Everybody has to be warm, because warm affects clotting. And if you're cold, then you'll bleed significantly. But we didn't know that at the time. And in Sarajevo, we had variable electricity. It was very cold. And I'd have so many patients uh, not make it off the operating table. And we forget in those days as well that it was significant, really. There was lots of people killed. And, and we forget all that, really, because we're just concentrating on the wars that are going on at the moment. In 96, I went off and worked in Kabul. uh, And this was a revelation for me because I'd had this desire then to go and spend my life doing this. Um, And I worked in the Kabul hospital, uh, ICRC hospital. There's me and there's a gentleman I met who was the epitome of what I thought a surgeon was. He could do every single operation. Uh, He could do everything from doing craniotomies to bowel surgery, to vascular surgery, to obstetrics, to urology, to orthopedics, the whole works. And that's what I wanted to be, that's what I felt I wanted to be in my life. But my rose-tinted glasses came off slightly uh, when I went uh, to Sierra Leone in 1998. I worked in the Connaught Hospital, uh, which was um, a very nice hospital, but man's inhumanity to man suddenly started to hit me, the Revolutionary United Front was this group of boys who were about 14 to 16, 17, who were told by their commander that people mustn't vote for a new democratic society. So they went round amputating people's hands so they couldn't vote. And they amputated everybody's hands, and not only did they, they did terrible things, and I was faced looking at people who had ears taken off, I'm not showing you those slides, they're so awful, and faces being taken off by a machete. But I just want to show you what it was like, actually. I gave a, one of my cameras to a friend of mine, I said to him, you know, go outside and take some pictures. So he's wandering through the hospital now, looking, this is my outpatients, where I spent six weeks just refashioning people's arms. And then he went outside the hospital in Freetown, and you can see tracer bullets flying around here. Uh, not only that, people running for their lives, Really frightened. And if you imagine, uh, uh, this is another... These are the boys that were fighting at the time. They're f- these are the most dangerous people you can ever meet if you're abroad. A child soldier is totally deranged and will do anything. This is, his, this is the commander walking down the street with a, with a machete, uh, really scaring people. And these are the other guys which have... Again, they're all deranged. They're all sometimes high on drugs, sometimes alcohol, and it's a very un- unpleasant place to be. When you think about it, though, uh, I was involved in the uh, London Bridge attacks, um, as I was at St. Mary's, and of course, what we saw was three people walking down the street, and this was I got off the internet from the CCTV camera, and this man is holding that machete. You'd never think it would happen on the streets of United Kingdom. Uh, I've worked also. I'm not going to tell you a lot of things, but I tell you the most important things. I decided I'd want to do some, uh, get some proper military experience and work with the forces. So I joined up at a very late stage and joined the Royal Air Force uh, to just do go out to Iraq and Afghanistan because I didn't want to miss out on what was happening. And again, uh, it was great thing to do. And I don't know if any young people in the audience would like to join up, or even as a reservist, but, and I only did it for five years because I wanted to see what it was like, but the camaraderie amongst uh, army uh, staff and army people its like a real brotherhood, and it was a, a real eye-opener for me to, to work there. But it was highly, highly dangerous in 2007. This is the field hospital in Iraq, and you can see there's, there's, there's uh, blocks uh, high, all the way down the corridors because, at the time, what was happening in the coalition operating base we had no hardcover at all. And these, these rockets would just come in nonstop uh, to try and uh, cause lots of problems. Things like this were coming in all the time. And this is just lying in my bed showing you what it was like. The alarms would go off. So I didn't like that hotel room, so I moved to another hotel room. And it was really, really dangerous. Uh, we would be on the pulling patients off the operating table who were on traction, bringing them down onto the floor, covering ourselves with them as these rockets and bombs were coming in. You can tell the difference between a surgeon here, when a rocket attack goes off, and an anaesthetist down there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but at the time, of course, it was we forget as well how dangerous it was in Basra, and one day at about 3 o'clock in the morning, I got up because I was, just wanted to go uh, to church. And I went to church and saw this uh, book. And it was all these people were killed uh, during a period of six weeks on this base. Nowadays, it's C-A-B-C-D-E, catastrophic hemorrhage. We put a, we put a, uh, a um, tourniquet, arms and legs. The first thing we do, then we check the airway, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. So he, this chap has had got a, a tourniquet, uh, as you can see on the upper arm. And, um, but nowadays, what we would do, is we'd debride. And it's, things have changed so much in the last two or three years that we would debride this wound now and not do what we did. We amputated his arm, and in fact, he turned out to be this guy who was called uh, RAF engineer John Allen Butterworth. And he, uh, we operated on him, and he won a silver medal in the 2012 Paralympics. I went off to Camp Bastion again to learn as much as I possibly could about war, and I did. I learned everything associated with it. But this was, I think, the, probably the worst experience I've had for a very long time, because we were left here in, in Camp Bastion, and we had a over a period of, in 2010, uh, between July and September, a total of 1,017 major Uh, injuries with bilateral amputations, triple amputations, people being blown up left, right and center. And the amount of work that would require to operate on these patients was enormous. You see here, there's two surgeons, but often we'd have six surgeons operating on something like this that came in with a terrible, terrible injury. I then decided to give up that and I wanted to go back then and use my training and everything else and go and, and see what I could do. So in 2011, I went off to Libya. Now, if you're called by MSF, often you get telephone goes off and said, David, uh, there's, would you like to come to Libya in 2011? Um, because there's Colonel Gaddafi's troops are firing and causing lots of problems. So of course, you say the first thing that goes to your head is, yes, I'll come. And then the next thing you do is have to clear it with your management and, and colleagues and so on. But after the call in April 2011, I went off to, uh, to uh, Misrata by boat from, Misra- from, by boat from Malta, because there's no other way to get into uh, Misrata. The whole place was surrounded by uh, Gaddafi troops, and there was firing shells in all the time. And this is going with MSF, and to, the MSF paid this captain of his boat to go into the uh, war zone. And to imagine taking a boat into a war zone full of MSF staff, uh, he charged 300,000 euros to just take us there, and MSF paid him to do it. This is the team, so it's a scratch team that MSF put together. And you don't quite know who you're working with. Uh, here I am with, a, uh, with an anesthetist from Washington, uh, an emergency physician from uh, Columbia. There's Rachel, who's my great friend, who's an anesthetist in Bristol. And then this guy, who is my other colleague as well, who's another surgeon. And again, I didn't quite know who he was, and he introduced himself as an American surgeon and said to me, you know, you know I don't take any stick. Oh, okay. And i have just written this book. Like, no regrets, and no apologies. <laughs> so so we, left, uh, we left Misrata by boat, uh, surrounded by uh, ships. Uh, it's very exciting. American and French warships took us into the harbor, which was on fire when we went in. Typical amount of injuries, uh, typical war. Again, in a hospital, you mustn't have any weapons, but there's weapons here, you shouldn't have that. And in Misrata at the time, there was very few surgeons, because most surgeons leave, most senior surgeons leave during a war, and you're left with very junior surgeons. So, although I put five general surgeons, these are general surgeons who have the age of around 25, 26, and they had no previous trauma experience. The expat support that came in from Emergency International Medical Corps also had received a telephone call, they wanted to come, but they also had no trauma experience. So what you do as a a group of people, you go in for the first 24 hours, and you just sit tight and you wait to see what's happening. You don't go in, you just look uh, and visualize what's happening around you. And you can see there are big problems, because this is triage, this is a mass casualty coming in, and it's really, There's so much commotion, nobody knows what's going on. Patients are being brought into this uh, triage tent, which is surrounded by medical students, so don't really know what they're doing. People having their operations in this triage tent, really, you need to make a big incision, have blood available if you need it, and not have a tiny little sucker here to try and do something. It doesn't work. The next picture is not very pleasant, but it's a child who was blown up. The shockwave killed the child, and you can see here, uh, there's no injuries at all on the child but they couldn't understand why that child was dead because they didn't know the effect of a shock wave and again people were shot here their incisions were made in the wrong place this is showing the spleen and the colon so there was a lot of things to do and even people being shot in the chest rather than having a chest drain put in they were having their uh, their their chest open in the wrong position and also the things As an elective surgeon, if you are electively you have a fracture like this in the UK or abroad, you will uh, put uh, um, an internal fixator, but in war you can't do that. The infection is rife. If you put a metal rod into the leg, you're going to give that patient osteomyelitis, and the patient will not do well, and he'll subsequently get septic and die. And again, what you must never do is close wounds in war. You must always leave them open. And so I've been lucky in my life, really. I ran the definitive surgical trauma skills course at the Royal College of Surgeons for about six years, um, eight years, in fact, before uh, giving it up recently. And I decided I had a stick with me, a USB stick. So I decided I have had enough of watching poor surgery. So I decided to start teaching the surgeons that were in Misrata. And of course, people didn't know who I was. And so you start off diplomatically, you run the course, and nobody turns up for the first day. Suddenly, the second day, so many people turn up, and by the end of it, I had a full classroom of people wanting to learn how to do it properly. And so, we, we, rather than closing wounds up, we put fluffy gauze, we dealt with injuries like this properly, again, with gunshot wounds to the chest, put a chest strain in and wait and see. And in the end, we all became really good friends. It took me a long time to develop an idea which I had in my head, which was to train surgeons in this country and abroad how to do this surgery properly in war zones. So I now run this course called Surgical Training for the Austrian Environment, which is a course Here's me in the middle, surrounded by people who really want to learn now to how to do this course. It's uh, an expensive course, um, but what we do is we teach surgeons how to manage all the injuries that you'll have Uh, plus the neurosurgery, all the facial injuries. And we also teach them how to manage obstetrics and gynaecology in the Royal College of Gynaecologists. And the most important thing I do these days is plastic surgery. You have to rotate flaps around to cover various holes in people and also orthopedics. And you need to know all this sort of surgery before you go abroad. You can't just go abroad and just do it. So we run the lab at the Royal College of Surgeons on cadavers. We have scenarios. And over the last sort of... Uh, 25 years, I've got a huge bank of information now which I'm allowed, I'm able to give to people. Um, but Syria has been a big part of my life, and again, I took the course with me, the surgical training for the Austrian environment course on my USB stick, went to Aleppo, and the amount of injuries in 2013 were enormous. And you can see here how a patient with fragmentation injuries, again, the surgeons didn't know how to manage it. There was a hole in the chest here, And the patient had this problem that the ECG showed that he had an agonal rhythm, which means he hasn't got any heart output at all, he's got no blood pressure, and this boy is dying. I'll show you the picture, the video, of what exactly happened. It's a bit gruesome, but it shows you how to manage the situation. So there's this young boy who's 14, having cardiac massage. The surgeon doesn't know how to manage this, so does his default operation, which is open the abdomen. There's nothing in the abdomen, but he doesn't know then what to do after that. I walk into the operating theater and open up the chest. This is me putting my gloves on here. And then what we found, is that he had a hole in his heart. And what he had Mm -hmm. had is a thing called a cardiac tamponade, which was bleeding into this big space around the heart, pressing on it. That's why he had no blood pressure. So in the middle of this, field hospital about 100 meters from the front line. We opened his chest up and we
1: Ah. stitched up
0: up his heart and he did really well. And the 14-year-old had a blood pressure back again and it was fantastic. So I was then, that was my first day there, so I realized that there were very difficult trauma cases. And so I taught all the Syrian surgeons in Aleppo how to do surgery. Either they came to me uh, so here I am here, with all the surgeons coming in, about 30 of them. And we did some enormous amount of surgery in this little, little hospital. It's important to know about obstetrics as well, how to do cesarean sections, because no point being a war surgeon going into a place where you're expecting to do deliveries, because that doesn't happen. What you deal with is a lady who's shot here, a gunshot wound on a 39-week pregnant lady, who's shot here and with an exit wound there, going through her Uterus. This is a midline incision, and this is a way how to. This is the only way you'd know how to do this is if you knew how to do a C section. So here's the operation, which is often you do C section through a fan and see a low incision, but of course, if you're in an emergency situation, you do a midline incision as rapidly as possible. And you can see here that I'm just uh, opening up the uh, abdomen, and I'm seeing that she's pregnant, um, and I'm trying to pull the uterus up. And there's, you see, some umbilical tube in a second. So pulling the uh, uterus up, there's the entry wound, there's the exit wound. Of course, there's a baby inside there, it's 39 weeks pregnant. And so I was told this, that she was about to have a breech delivery, um, uh, not a breech delivery, about to have a, a normal delivery. So very quickly, with a scalpel, lower segment, uh, and then very quickly opening up the lower segment as rapidly as I possibly can to get the baby out. And then you're left then with holes in the uterus. What do you do with that? Well, the right thing to do in war is not to do a hysterectomy, is to sew up the wounds as rapidly as you possibly can. In war as well, you get lots of patients having terrible injuries like this, and of course, what do you do with it? Well, you do some plastic surgery, and this is rotating a groin flap and putting it around the, the patient's arm. You wait for three weeks or so for the blood to occur, from blood to um, assimilate from the, from the recipient arm into the flap, and then you cut it at about three weeks' time. And this is with the boys when I left Aleppo. This is them showing me how they'd done it, and this is the result. It was nice to leave a legacy there because um, I got a, a message to say that, that Abu Abdullah had done a heart operation and he wanted to share it with me. And this is the, one of the surgeons in Syria when I left. Again, a gunshot wound here, and there he is with a survived patient. In normal clinical practice, as a doctor and a patient, we have one-to-one. Sometimes we deal with car accidents where you have lots of patients. But in war, you have significant injuries. You have mass casualties. And of course, now, in the last, this is the last uh, few, few uh, 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 weeks, and certainly summertime, we've had mass casualties at our hospital in London and St. Mary's and so on and so forth. And this is our mass casualty protocol. But I want to show you how, it's, if it's done very badly, and this is in Iraq in 2014, uh,
1: 2004.
0: What should happen is, is that people should stop people from coming in, not bring everybody in that's been involved in the attack, because the whole place becomes completely and utterly uh, confused. And nobody knows what they're doing, nobody's in charge, the theatres, nobody knows who needs to go to theatre or anything. And this is all to do with training, about how to train people to deal with mass casualties. And you'll see here that there are doctors wandering around, patients on the floor. The whole place is so noisy, you can't work out what's going on. Nobody's making any decisions about who needs to go to theatre first, who needs to go to theatre second. And it's a shambolic sort of environment to be in. And again, this is what shows if you don't, you're not trained how to do it properly. And emotions get very high people start shouting and fighting with people and some patients want their relatives relatives want their loved ones to be treated first and so the whole place becomes a a very difficult environment and you see here what happens in a second when things really get out of control Here's a security guard with his gun. And of course, you don't want things to happen like that. This is in Syria 2013 when I was there. I was in a hospital just about 50 meters away when people were having a meeting and a suicide bomb went off. And again, this is what happened then. And so I was about 50 meters away in this hospital and we expected all these casualties. Now the problem is you always expect, if there's a suicide bomber, always expect a second hit. And people go and help people. You heard about in the Egyptian crisis yesterday, how ambulances went in and people being shot in the ambulances. Again, the same thing happens if people really want to kill people, is that they will expect people to go and help people. um, And then they'll just blow up another bomb. This is what happened here again. This is called a second hit. And again, in the this this time we tried to make it a bit more less uh, more calm than what it normally is, and tried to reevaluate the patients properly. In 2014, I went off to Gaza during the war. Gaza is a very small, seven miles long, 22 miles. Uh, seven miles wide, 22 miles long. It's the biggest prison in the whole world, really, I would say. And this is going in now to, uh, during the Israeli Gaza conflict, to pick patients up. And we had mass casualties almost every day. You can see here 102 casualties coming in. And we trained the Gaza surgeons how to do it properly. So I'm standing now behind the surgeon who we've been talking to. Patients are coming in. He's asking him, who is he? Is he required? No, he's not required. You go somewhere else." And he's just standing there directing, stopping patients from filling up one place, uh, and the most important and and difficult cases get to one side, and the less traumatized one go to the other. So again, he's asking who these people are. So casualties coming in, he's stopping them coming in, um, asking what the problem is. He's talking to him to tell him what the problem is. He now says, okay, I think this needs to go to theater, you better go on that side. And then, of course, then he's followed by a a young child who comes in, who's not so badly wounded. So that child goes to that side. That's how it should manage, and that's how we now do it uh, in my hospital. Syria 2014 was terrible. Um, Barrel bombs being dropped. I showed you the effects of that barrel bomb. Um, Patients were being brought in with uh, smoke inhalation as well, never mind the effect of the bomb blast. And there were rockets being fired around non-stop. And this is... We went out from one hospital to another, walked from one hospital to another, and this is what it was like there. And there's nothing worse than thinking that your life is going to be to be ended. And so it's a very, very dangerous environment to work as a surgeon. A little boy here was involved in a barrel-bomb injury, and this goes to show why it's important to have surgeons being properly trained. This this little boy had lost his arteries to all three vessels to his foot. So it's easy in war to say, OK, let's just amputate his leg. But of course, you don't know what's going to happen to that little boy. You don't know whether or not he's going to get a prosthesis, whether the bone is going to grow, you don't know whether he's going to be there for a while, he's getting an infection, and so on and so forth. So what we did is we took the vein out of the other leg, and we plumb the artery into below the knee into, into the foot, revascularize his foot, and of course, then you're left with a situation that you need to cover the graft. So going back 40 years of plastic surgery, right in the very beginning of plastic surgery in the Second World War, they used to do things like cross-leg flaps. You take the cross-leg flap, which has its blood supply there, and you join it and you, you take the flap up, which has its blood supply on three little perforators, and there's me teaching the surgeons in Aleppo how to do that. Bring up the flap, you put it onto the leg, and you wait for three weeks or so, and you divide it again. Uh, and, then, and here he is, uh, walking after about two months. And so, uh, not only with war, I've been off to Haiti and the Nepal for the earthquakes. And again, you expect to do trauma but that's why it's important to do OBS and gynae because the first day I arrived there I met Rachel again and became an obstetrician and spent most of my time delivering babies. Um, I've set up a foundation called Under My Name um, because it's very expensive for patients for, to join the surgical training for the Austrian environment course, so I decided to and that nobody would pay for people to come, so I thought, sod it, I'll set up my own charity. So I did, and so patients, uh, so so students from around the world now get paid by our foundation to come and get trained in London. We ran a course just uh, three weeks ago on our surgical training for the Osteo Environment. Um, And so here are our students, which were in the February course, which we paid for to come across from all over the world, and here they are on our uh, November course, uh, which is the start of the w- month, uh, who we paid for to come across from all over the world, from Africa, Middle East, and so on and so forth. But We also take the course uh, abroad, which is called the Hostile Environment Surgical Training course, and personally I go and train people on the front lines, so we've been to Syria, Turkish border, been to Ramallah, uh, Gaza, Yemen, and more recently in Mosul, and um, we train, it's more or less a, s- a lecture studies, um, and I lecture to the the surgeons that come have a translator if it's necessary to translate. Uh, this is in uh, a Turkish-Syrian border. We now had a grant of £400,000 the other day from a, from a, uh, a very pleasant gentleman, and, w- and we are now creating a, a model which I'm going to take with me on our next trips. Uh, it's lovely to come back. This is, in, this is Abu Abdullah in Syria, and to give him a certificate uh, from one of our courses. This is in the Aden, going to Aden, the Yemen, again teaching 43 Yemeni surgeons, and they all love certificates. Again in Gaza, treating patients in Gaza. And this is in Mosul recently, we went. And this is West Mosul uh, after ISIS had just left. The whole place is just flattened completely. Again, lecturing and giving uh, all our. Uh, and again, not only that, I actually operate with them as well, and so we operate together. Um, and I try and give over as much as my knowledge that I possibly can. But you do find terrible things. And uh, When I was in Mosul uh, in September, this is a lady who's a mother, and you can't believe that people would do this. This is an Isis bride with a three-year-old little boy who had a bomb in her bag and blew, up, blew herself up, plus her little boy. And the little boy went flying in the air, and uh, she, got, she obviously died. Um, but this is the little boy's leg. Um, and again, that's why it's so important to train people, because this is what I was faced with. I said, David, look what we've done. Isn't this wonderful? No, it's not wonderful. The leg's infected. It's not going to work. This is not going to work. So, unfortunately, sometimes you do have to amputate. And this is the little boy, and uh, he's still, still calling for his mama, which is terrible. Again, you have to be neutral but truthful when you go out. And again, uh, you must have heard me on the radio non-stop last year going on and on and on about trying to save my 50 uh, Aleppo doctors. And I even went on a march. I've never done a march before. We did that shouting in Trafalgar Square how it's important that doctors and uh, hospitals are not damaged by war. And healthcare is seen as a weapon. Uh, You take out a doctor, you take out 10,000 people they can't care for. And we went on a march down to uh, 10 Downing Street, again, to highlight the effects of fi- uh, killing doctors and nurses and bombing hospitals. And here's me arguing with a policeman, because I wanted to give him this certificate. To I wanted to show him that, you know, we've signed all this, and it, that David Cameron must do something about it. So eventually, they let me in. And so here I am delivering this letter to David Cameron, who promptly resigned. LAUGHTER so. Again, something very important to my heart is telemedicine. I know I'm slightly overrunning, but I just want to show you this. Um, this is M10 Hospital Aleppo, uh, Aleppo 2014. Uh, this is the underground hospital where I worked in, and looking at patients there. And I just want to play this to you. If I can turn the volume up a little bit, if you possibly can, um, it's something that I'm passionate about now.
1: Underground and under siege a rare glimpse into an operating theatre in Aleppo. Hollywood doesn't do the reality of war, so this is what it looks like when a man has his jaw blown off. In rebel-held Syria, being a doctor is a dangerous game.
0: 754 doctors have been actively killed in the north uh, of Syria since the conflict started in 2011. And it's suggested that being a... a medic or even a patient in a hospital is probably the worst place you possibly can be in because hospitals are targeted constantly, doctors are targeted constantly.
1: Mohammed, a shopkeeper, was hit, they say, by a Russian bomb, which also killed two of his friends. They've never done a jaw reconstruction before, but if they don't, the chances for this father of three are slim. Oh, yeah. David Knott is a London surgeon who went to Aleppo two years uh, ago to train surgeons. Now his former former students have asked him to direct the jaw operation via
0: Skype and WhatsApp. How exciting is this? For me, this is one of the most exciting things I think I've ever done. Being able to direct surgeons who I've actually trained, I've trained these boys uh, when I was there in Syria, so they know me and they have confidence in me, I know them, I have confidence in them, I know what they can do. Um, So between the two of us, um, we can do this operation.
1: We believe this is a world first. A selfie stick being used to transport an eminent London surgeon into a basement hospital in a besieged city.
0: I want you to take uh, an incision which goes uh, to take the whole of the pectoralis major muscle so I want you to make an incision laterally below the laterally below the the okay. the nipple to, ex, to start to mobilize the pectoralis major muscle. Okay.
1: Uh, Doctor, uh, actually, I, wh- what about the uh,
0: the medial to the nipple? And uh, I make uh, two flaps and mobilize the yeah. pectoralis major. Okay, that is absolutely fine. Uh,
1: Challenge here is that the doctors in Syria are young and enthusiastic, but they're inexperienced. David Knott, a London surgeon, he knows what he's doing and the two sets of doctors are connecting through the very latest in our amazing digital technology. But of course, the batteries go down, the line drops out. It's difficult, but nevertheless, the two sets of doctors Operating the siege of okay, a uh, small problem here. OK. The doctors okay. solved their problem, is, is, then is David explained to, to, to me the complexity resolved. of the operation.
0: This is the pectoralis major muscle. yeah. And this is the muscle which has an artery comes off just below the collarbone there. there. Yeah. So we've pre- we preserved that artery to this muscle. We've now put an l- area of skin on here as well. So we're going to move that right up into the man's jaw and we're going to put it underneath the um, metal plate and then uh, the skin goes over the top. So the skin will come here and the muscle will cover the, uh, the plate.
1: So you won't know when you look at him but he's got a plate in his mouth. Correct. You've done a wonderful job today. Thanks, John. Yeah. How um, good has Dr Knott been in terms of helping you do this operation, how valuable has been his help? It's a question. We are very thankful, uh, our doctor, not because it is a very difficult and complex operation. We can't do it alone. We need some help, and the patient, because we, uh, we are besieged. The patient can't go outside of Aleppo. We must do it here. This was never about just saving the life of one man. Now that the doctors in Aleppo know the technique, they can operate on other patients. But it's also about reminding them and their patients that the world has not quite forgotten Aleppo.
0: This was him shortly afterwards. You can see he's had a very nice result. Now I want to show you something very bittersweet, uh, which was really terrible. Here you can see M10 Hospital, where I, wo- where I worked in 2010, at 14. And here you can see uh, the hospital. It's the same corridor, but they put some flowers now on the outside. And this is it in two. This is it last year. And this was five days after we did the operation. Now, somebody must have been listening via, I don't know, telecommunications of some sort, but somebody was listening to us performing the operation in my office in London, and their um, operating theatre, because the operating theatre is underneath here. You go down this state, across there, underneath and underground is that's where the operating theatre is. And somebody must have been watching us doing it and getting the coordinates, because this is what happened. And it really affected the way that I felt about things. The same thing that happened to me when I was there, there was a plane circling around and you can see this gentleman uh, looking up into the air to see that there's definitely something up there and realizing he might need to take some cover and um, and as this was happening uh, somebody walks in in a second and then this happens So a bunker-busting dro- a bu- a bunker bomb dropped on the hospital, and that was what it was left with. And so it was a real... We did a fantastic job, yet it was really terribly tragic at the end of it. So we're still batting on the door uh, and saying how it's important that you must protect doctors in war zones. You can't kill them. So, in conclusion then, living, leaving a legacy, it is the surgery of conflict. You need to know about how to, what, is the, what is the effect of the physics, the kinetic energy on people, and you need to be able to manage it properly. You need to be very experienced in it. You can't just go and you need to develop your experience. And it takes years and years and years. And I think leadership comes from, from experience. If you've got the experience, you can give that back, and you can't just become a leader. Uh, You you can't just be a leader, you have to become a leader uh, with experience. And building confidence requires you to be there. You need to be there and not read from books and tell them how to do it. It's extremely risky, as you can see, Um, and you need to be neutral and truthful, and you need to continue to fight uh, for human justice, is what we do. As uh, Sam said, I've just come back from uh, um, the camps in Rohingya with the refugees on the... uh, border between um, Bangladesh and Burma. Terrible state of affairs. 800,000 people are in this camp at the moment, and the, the amount of medical neglect is enormous. Thank you very much.